0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an
0: honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to.
0: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the
3: world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us from Los Angeles, our special Hollywood correspondent, Anthony Presencan.
2: Hey, I'm so happy to be on my first Little Gold Men I was
1: going to say, I can't believe this is the first time we've had you on. It's, uh, we've had a great time having you on the Hollywood team, and you got to do the special thing of going to what looks like the most fun actual Oscars event. You went to the Governor's Awards.
2: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of cool people looking great, and... Uh... Kind of a fun, funny evening, plus yeah. a bunch of legends.
1: <laughs> well, we're going to bug Anthony about his experience with the Governor's Awards and then also talk a little bit about Best Director as we kind of make our way through all the Oscar categories and dive deep into them. Uh, and in the back half of the episode, we're going to hear Richard Lawson, who talked to Elizabeth Moss, who gave one of my favorite performances of the year in Her Smell and um, kind of as part of our backdoor efforts to run a campaign without anyone paying us. Uh, we brought her back into the studio to talk about that movie and hopefully get more people to catch up on it. Um, But first, Anthony, you went to the Governor's Awards. Was this your first time going to this event?
2: No, no. uh, First time in a couple of years, but uh, I've been a a few times in the past, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Roger Corman got his and uh, uh, Eli Wallach. They're they're not that old. It's not like a super storied tradition. Uh, I'd have to look up the exact number, but when they stopped presenting the awards during the Oscar telecast, they created this special you know, ball that takes place kind of at the beginning of Oscar season.
1: But it kind of handily works as a campaign stop. So it's like, you know, we don't get to see the governors or the people give these speeches on television anymore. But if you want an Oscar, you get to go to this room where all the Oscar voters are going to be and rub elbows for one night.
2: Yeah. You know, you, you, you buy your tickets. You get the studios buy tickets and buy tables. And then they bring the people that they hope will be, um, you know, in the audience or uh, among the nominees on Oscar night.
1: So having read your piece that you wrote for us, it almost seems more useful to talk about the Oscar hopefuls who weren't there. Like, I don't think Brad Pitt was there. Um, I don't think Joaquin Phoenix was there. But like every best actress contender I could think of was there. It was a pretty impressive turnout.
2: It really was. Um, Yeah, I was trying to do that, too. It's very hard when there aren't actual like there haven't been any awards given out to anyone yet to say (laughs) who's like not there. But because you're still trying to figure out who's who's in the class, you know, who's who are among the competitors. Uh, but there were, I mean, there was just about every every film was certainly represented, and you never know, you never know like what whether somebody's away or shooting or you know just couldn't make it back. But everybody who really thinks they have a shot was there. Yeah, uh, it was kind of cool. Like you know, Eddie Murphy is, I thought I thought he was amazing in Dolomite is my name, and um, he was sitting there, and uh, you know across the table is like because um, it's the Netflix table. Right, it's uh, it's a couple. Were the, of the folks. were those
1: popes? Were the popes there?
2: <laughs> I didn't see the popes. I didn't see the two popes.
1: I think Jonathan Price is still on Broadway, um, which is making his his two popes schedule trickier. And then I just I just need to have a pope check in for you, Katie. I um, know I'm always worried about those popes. <laughs> but like the, Harvey
2: Keitel was across the way, and he's not he's not oh, necessarily Irishman like in the running, folks.
1: Yeah, Irishmen, yeah.
2: folks. Yeah. So um, and you Adam Driver and so Charles are
1: handsome. both there.
2: Yeah, Adam Driver was sitting right behind Eddie Murphy. So it's, like, kind of weird. They're, like, the two... Those two guys and Joaquin are kind of, like, considered the acting frontrunners, wouldn't you say? And, like... Just, they're just sitting back to back.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like they're both they're, in Netflix movies. They kind of have to, like, well, that's you it, know, share that's the their same ta- space. That,
2: they're at that table, you know what I mean? So. Uh, and
1: also um, Laura Dern, who got to be – she was, like, a triple threat. Like, she's a, she's on the Board of Governors of the Academy. She's a contender for Marriage Story, and she presented David Lynch with his honorary award. Like, she could not hope for a better launch pad for a campaign.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's uh, so she's up for supporting actress as Nora that gives this amazing speech about mothers and fathers in Marriage Story. And, like – but also like this is the thing is like you would not give a lifetime achievement award to David Lynch without having her be a part of it right yeah. if she was available so that felt very organic to me like choosing Christian Bale to give the award to Wes Duty like like okay they were in hostels <laughs> together i mean that's fine yeah but also like Christian Bale is is hoping that his you know his race car driver from Ford V Ferrari uh, gets a nomination so you know little things like that Greta Gerwig presented to Lena Wertmuller and um, you know that she found her to be an inspiration of course but then lots of people would so they did a mix of like people who are sort of legendary and had a connection to the person who was being honored uh, but also coincidentally often it was somebody who's also in contention so Sophia Loren is not here to you know uh, campaign.
1: I wish she was. Oh my god, I, I love know. Sophia Loren in the Oscar race. Didn't <laughs> cool. um, didn't Tom Hanks present to Gina Davis and like make a joke about how you want a white man to present to a woman who's like fought for gender equality?
2: Well, yeah, he was talking about like what her institute does, and he's like, and uh, I don't mean to like mansplain, but then and then he mansplained what mansplaining is. Mansplaining <laughs> is like when. <laughs> that, so that was very funny, but like even that, I think. That's pretty organic. I mean, He's, that's the you know, League of Their
1: Own reunion I've been dying for. Yeah, Absolutely. and that's very sweet.
2: And so, you know, I thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, it didn't it never felt oppressive like they got somebody who just like, Why is this person here uh presenting the honor? But there were definitely people who got a boost from it. You know what I'm saying? Like uh in, in the Lena Wertmuller video, they had uh uh Quentin Tarantino was featured among like maybe five filmmakers who were talking about her. So bully for him you know
1: yeah wasn't he in the picture like there's a picture of lena vermuller at the party after and like quentin Tarantino was like sitting with her in a booth like living it up so you know as like the, the chief film nerd of hollywood it seems like he gets a boost just from getting to adore her
2: yeah i think so i mean that's it that's it's it's sort of like it's interesting because you have like these great big stars but they're also basking in the reflected glory of these legendary figures yeah and um and maybe capturing a little bit of a uh, attention from a ballroom full of Academy voters. I mean, there right. is no more concentrated audience of people who will cast ballots for the Oscars than that room. So it's the place to be.
3: Well, I, I'm just curious, in rooms like that, uh, where people are often like milling about before they're seated, did you see anyone sort of like, especially aggressively, like pressing the flesh or anything like that? Aggressively?
2: Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Like, it's pretty chill. You know, it's right. not like... It's not like there's a line of people, you know, like you'd see like a politician at a state fair going down a line, shaking hands and hugging babies and taking selfies and all that. There wasn't, it wasn't like that. I mean, it was much more, if you could grab a moment of spotlight for yourself, that was cool. You know, Jamie Foxx is up for Just Mercy and he does the introduction, right? And then he calls up Eddie Murphy and Tom Hanks does a little dance and like uh, those folks are pretty fortunate to get like the attention of the entire room all at once otherwise there weren't publicists so much like there were some publicists there but they were not like there weren't publicists shepherding their talent around to meet people mm-hmm. you know which is what you all see right. it
1: a lot especially at parties where there's a lot of press you see that a lot
2: yeah not not to the degree i mean i'm sure there were there were introductions made but not to the degree of like where it was obvious it's a lot of it's a it's a black tie event people are looking very beautiful and glamorous i think they want to get their picture taken so that that's in newspapers and websites they want to schmooze with some powerful people from the academy maybe influential definitely talking like to governors who talk to a lot of academy members and then you have your meal and do your presentations and everybody goes home um so it's not like yeah it's not exactly like a, a campaign stop. I'm trying to think like what it's unique in the universe. I mean, it's so like, like a kinda... campaign
1: stop that's trying to pretend it's not being a campaign stop. You know, like everyone knows what the game is, but you're, but, but you're also there. <laughs> you can kind of lean back and be like, well, I'm really here for West Studio And like, you know, you're there for West Studio. Like it's an important honor for these right. people. So it's kind of like one of the more dignified moments in this big circus. I
3: want to ask you, Anthony. Can I circle back to a name you mentioned, which is Jamie Fox? And I'm I am of the having seen in Jamie Fox work a room. I have been pushing this idea on this podcast that like we should never count Jamie Fox out in an awards race. He's not like a lot of people's front runners for Just Mercy. I just think he's incredibly good at working a room. In addition to being talented, um, like what did you see of uh, specifically of Jamie Fox, sort
2: of at the Governor's Awards? I mean, it's got to be. A- Couple of thousand people. So, like, I didn't see him until he was up on stage, you know? Yeah. But just the way he worked the room from the stage was wild. He's just sort of singing along to Minnie the Moocher. He was, uh, you know, calling out to people in the audience. That was, he didn't do like opening jokes or anything like that. He just kind of like called out to people, like, I see you. And then he took a picture with Eddie Murphy and called him up to the stage and so it was a little bit strange, but then afterwards, yeah, you see him go into the crowd, and he's just like, "Hey, how you doing?" Like moving from table to table, to everybody in his path. He was like Pac Man, sort of, you know, like <laughs> going up and down the aisles. <laughs> you know, got to cover every cover every angle or every every path, and um, but, uh, but 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 that's how a lot of people were, you know, but once the show starts, it'd be kind of rude to be standing up and glad handing. So there wasn't a a
1: lot of that. I feel like you always hear stories from this room about like, not necessarily who was moving around the room the most, but who everyone was centering around. Like if you're at a party where there's like one big celebrity, like you feel the, the gravitational pulse of the room move toward that person. Was there a person like that in this room full of stars?
2: I thought Kiki Palmer was getting a lot of attention. She looked beautiful and she was, uh, she's in this big purple dress and, uh, uh, like kind of hard to miss like a big purple flower on a birthday cake but very classy <laughs> and elegant you know and i mean um, sorry
1: to this man she had the best viral moment of uh, of the fall I, so far
2: i did go up to her and talk to her and i i interviewed her when she was a little girl in akila and the bee does anybody remember oh yeah that i saw the Bee oh, yeah.
1: in oh, yeah. theaters
2: <laughs> i love akila and the bee and i have two little ones so you know our family loves that movie after all this time. And I was like, hey, it's been a long time. I doubt you remember me, but like, we met a long time ago in Aquila and the Bee, and I just wanted to thank you on behalf of Vanity Fair and Condé Nast for your amazing <laughs> video that blew out our servers. And she laughed really hard, and she looks at me and just does the line. She's like, I'm sorry to this man. <laughs> and, like, and then we were talking, and I said something, and she was like, Oh, I like how you said that. And then she repeated it back in like a Kiki Palmer, like, uh, sincere voice. Like, uh, and I was like, you know, I think you need to create an app where you say something in, like, say it to Siri, but Kiki Palmer says it back to you.
1: <laughs> I would get the Kiki app for sure. Yeah. I mean, speaking of like unpaid uh, FYC street teams, I would happily be on the Everyone in Hustlers as there's an Oscar nomination street team.
2: That would be cool. Yeah
3: um so we checked in on those popes i gotta do my job and check in uh how is the rocket man a representation in the room was there anything going
2: yeah there were some i didn't see i wasn't near their table so i didn't get a i didn't get a good perspective on the whole that ba- you know the whole gang i actually saw more like paramount executives who i knew were shepherding that movie i ran into them in the elevator but yeah, it's a the thing is it's a big room there. Almost everybody is there, but um but it's also not uh it's not it's easy to go unnoticed too. I just looked saying. up a
1: picture of Taryn on Getty. He's looking he looking good, you know. Okay. Yeah. Turn it up Thank in you. a sharp tux. <laughs> it's half the half the work.
2: <laughs> yeah, but he but it was also kind of like the opposite of Elton John. Like he's just it's such a like restrained look, you know?
1: Oh yeah. Well, the uh, I've been noticing how like this big satin puffy sleeves are like apparently the the right carpet fashion trend that's going to be dominating this year. So you talk about Kiki Palmer looking like a birthday cake, I feel like there's going to be a lot more of that to come. So prepare to make your own elbow room, Anthony. There's going to be a lot of uh, these big parties ahead.
2: I'll try to fit in. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson,
4: the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Britney Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors, as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.
1: Uh, Well, we mentioned Quentin Tarantino being at the Governor's Awards. He was one of uh, several directors there, I think. And our plan had been to uh, dive deep on the best director category this week since we've been going through all the acting categories in the past. Um, To me, I think the the conversation has to start with Quentin Tarantino. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a huge summer hit. It just got re-released with extra footage, which is a clear sign that a studio wants everyone to keep paying attention to something in the Oscar race. Um, It feels to me mostly like his best director race to lose, even if I don't Necessarily know as much about how Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would do in Best Picture. Um, what do you guys think? Do you do you think Quentin Tarantino is as strong and Best Director as I do? I, like you guys have been saying this for a really long
3: time, and I it just hasn't touched me. And I think it's just because like I wasn't involved in any of the festivals where it played, so I just like you know, I haven't. Seen that, and like for me, the the steam seems to be behind either Scorsese or uh Bong Joon Ho. Like the mm-hmm. Bong Joon Ho uh, clamor seems really loud, so I don't mean to take us off Tarantino so quickly, we can go back on him. I'm just saying, like, it's just not in front of me, I'm not seeing it. So, yeah,
2: I think the Bong Joon Ho analysis is really smart, Joanna, and um, the director's branch especially loves to choose people who aren't, like, sort of obvious or mainstream, you know? And not that he's not mainstream and popular, but, you know, like, um, uh, rather than just choosing the juggernauts, they sometimes choose the people that might seem unlikely in some way, you know, and having having him in there certainly would be within uh, the tradition they've established in recent years. But they also, I do think directors love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and the Hollywood people love <laughs> that movie. It's uh, as... People who think they're being clever love to say a movie movie. (laughs) But, like, it's uh... a
3: movie movie. It is a movie movie. But, I mean, like,
2: I just think, like, I've been on film sets over the past couple of months since that came out. And, like, the whole crew goes to see the film because they see their own work back there, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, they see it on screen. And... um, you can't really understate that. It would be like if somebody made a Vanity Fair movie and we were all just like, oh, obsessively watching it. to see, like, <laughs> You know, uh, how much it, it corresponds to what we do and how much of it is a fantasy. And, um, you know, it's got actual like makeup and hair people in it, playing makeup and hair people on sets. So uh, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. Like it's like genetically engineered for Academy consumption. So uh, he's... Absolutely, getting nominated, and I kind of feel like he—he he is the front runner. Uh, I also feel like he's the most likely to say something that makes himself not the front runner.
1: So, um, <laughs> Todd Phillips is still technically in there, so don't don't count him. Oh
2: yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, yeah, he's I, yeah, that's true. I, but in terms of like a definite nominee, yeah. Um, Todd's the most likely to talk himself out of a nomination, but Tarantino is, is, uh, <laughs> is absolutely getting a nomination. And
1: it sounds kind of like reductive to say, but Tarantino has not won best director. And especially mm-hmm. when you start talking about him and Scorsese, who I think are a solid two. like, I think the, the Bong Joon-ho buzz is really significant and it would be crazy for him not to get a nomination at this point. Um, but when you have like Scorsese, who has won once, who's had this kind of incredible late career, who's... I think the Irishman's impact hasn't really yet been seen yet. Uh, And then Tarantino, who's made maybe not the best movie of his his career, but definitely one of them. Um, It it just seems like if you think Quentin Tarantino deserves the Best Director Oscar, this is a great opportunity to do it.
3: Okay, you've convinced me, Anthony, like in the way that the uh, East Coast elites of Mike and Richard and Katie uh, never have. uh, (laughs) Yeah, Welcome to our East Coast, West Coast rivalry, Anthony. (laughs) <laughs> that this is uh that this is yeah this is the movie movie and i would be foolish to ignore it like this is the lesson we learned from shape of water like we were told mm. by our folks in la that that la was just eating up shape of water because it was kind of about movies uh and we should not ignore that and this is about not just about movies but about the the art and like not just art but like just work of making movies uh so okay i'm i'm convinced you convinced me anthony Uh, (laughs) um once upon time in hollywood it's gonna sweep uh but we haven't talked about gretto yet which we need to do obviously no well and little woman little women has had these uh screenings or the embargo is lifted on these uh screenings since we last talked right uh so, yeah, yeah, the like little it. women reactions,
1: yeah. which are mostly vague at this point, but you know, people saw it um, in LA, I think, was this big screening. And we've been hearing from various other people who we knew he'd seen it and hearing some positive reaction. I think it might be like the movie might be a little bit more radical than I was expecting. Like people talking about how it's um, mostly set as the women whim- as their adults and then kind of flashes back to the past, which I wasn't expecting. But I don't know. I mean, the Greta Hive on this podcast is pretty strong. Like, I would still. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that she's not going to be a strong contender. If we wind up with an all-male best director lineup after the year of Hustlers and Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and Little Women, that will be stupid. And The Farewell. Sorry, one more.
3: Anthony, do you have any uh, – Have what have you heard about Little Women on the Ground in Los Angeles?
2: People like it. It's a weird thing because people can really, really like something and it's not like – it's not freaking them out. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. making them go – That's amazing and groundbreaking, or or uh, it's not audacious. Let's put it that way.
1: Not like the way people've been reacting to Parasite.
2: Yes, Parasite has like what the oh my god! Like I can't believe it. Oh, you have to see it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know. Right. Um, Irishman has a lot of that too. Once upon a time, had that over the summer. Oh my god, you had to see it. You have to see it again, and you have to see it again and again. But it sounds like a bummer. Like, well, why can't you just say that was really good and I I loved it. It made me feel happy. And it's it's not it's not a bad reaction. It could use a little more rocket fuel, maybe. Mm, You know, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And we'll, see, and we'll see what happens when, like, more people see it. But, like, yeah, that, I think that's, that's a correct assessment. And it's not, like, it's not a knock on the movie. It's just sort of like, okay, yeah, people really like it. But they're not, like, uh, yeah, there's a difference between really like it and texting someone you know and being like, you have to go see it right now. Don't read anything. Go see it, you know? Yeah. Uh,
2: here's where I think it'll take off is if the box office is huge for it, which I think is, has a really strong potential, um, then it'll be like, whoa, you, you got to see it. You got to see Little Women. Yeah, yo, bro, you gotta see it.
1: <laughs> It'd be get yo, bro, get For
2: Forget cats, bro. We're <laughs> to bro
3: down a little
2: women. <laughs> love it, love it.
1: Well, we talk about Tarantino and um, Scorsese and Bong Joon Ho, who I think are a pretty solid top three. Like I would predict all three of them, and be really surprised if they didn't all make it in. So that leaves us two spots. We're not totally sure how Little Women's going to land. Who else do you think is in there? Should we talk about Taika? Like, yeah, know, let's, and, talk about, let's talk about talk about JoJo Rabbit. It's uh can, you know, continuing to do pretty well in limited release out there.
2: Yep. Yeah. I think I would not count it out. It it got a divisive reaction among critics, but so did Inglorious Bastards. Mm. And um So did Green Book. And so did Green Book. JoJo doesn't have the same problems that Green Book No, had. no, no, no.
1: I think I, no. I think yeah. it's a pretty different movie.
2: <laughs> and you know, there are the people who are like, oh, can you have a, a comedic Mixed comedy and drama, and the Holocaust and Nazism, and uh, Roberto Benigni won Best Actor for *Life is Beautiful*. So, yeah. uh, even though that was like ages ago, and the Academy has changed a lot since then, uh, you're looking at people who who like that kind of movie. You know, who are into the idea of it um, of mixing of mixing tones. Mixing tones is a great way to get filmmakers excited because everybody knows how to make like an action picture, a romantic picture, or a, you know, gangster film, horror movie, but making something that's a weird combination. It's just like creating a unique animal. So instead of looking at a giraffe, you're looking at this like Dr. Seuss creature. And, um, that's what (laughs) Jojo Rabbit is. So I think there's, um, there's serious potential there, but where, so best picture, like maybe, you know, um,
1: what about best, what about best director?
2: Yeah, I think so. Possibly. I don't think – I also think he's super charming, but he's also going off to shoot uh, a little movie about soccer, and he's not going to be around for a little while.
1: Is he really doing so that, that before not... the next Thor thing? No, hmm Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were going to be like sarcastically Starts. a little movie called Thor whatever the – oh i know so i
3: thought i was like oh here comes the marvel joke from anthony no (laughs) sucker movie
2: Uh how nice that i could surprise you uh it was no he's making an actual little movie and he's starting it next week so he's not going to be on the campaign circuit the way other people are interesting so but you know if it happens it happens i i think there's a lot of love for jojo um, there's also a lot of uncertainty, like, should I love JoJo? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, right, right. But also so we know that Academy of... voters
1: don't like being told by snobby critics, like, you're not allowed to like this, it's not good. So, uh, you know, yes. uh, probably plenty of uh, spiteful, like, no, I am going to like this movie that made me laugh, which I think is fine.
2: Absolutely.
3: Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to contemplate Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, who we think of as like screenwriter directors, right? You know what I mean. And so, like, I could easily see Noah and Greta in screenplay and not in director. But I could, I would also. Uh, I mean sight unseen for little women happily see them both in the director category um, and uh, as we've talked about this is like Mike Hogan's favorite juicy award season <laughs> um, matchup, which is you know the real life couple uh, Although both it's, in the race.
1: I, I, I try to think about because like I like Marriage Story so much I like Credit Gerwig's work so much I want to see them both rewarded but like the appeal of them nominated against each other it just pales in comparison to Catherine Bigelow beating her ex James Cameron <laughs> like there's something about so that setting the oh. goal. Standard for romantic relationships squaring off against each other at the Oscars. I don't know why. Um, Plus, Greta and Noah like very separately refused to play this
3: game with us, and they're just like, We are collaborative partners, and we both worked on both movies. Yeah, uh, like shut Dern- up and Lord- chill out, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laura Dern backed that up in her interview with us, you know, like that she's just like, yeah. It, like, you know, Greta was working on Marriage Story and Noah was working on Little Women and it was all just like one big happy family. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Mike Hogan wanted to smack down, but that's fine. Um, and then uh, and then Pedro Moldovar. Uh, I don't think we've talked about yet, but yeah. um, I would love to see Pedro, like Greta and, and Bong Joon-ho like all in there among the white dudes just to... Yeah, that'd They're be all great. Inc- incredibly worthy, and uh, you know, let's just mix it up more and more, folks. You know? Well,
1: um, Mark Harris has a piece going up on VF.com this week kind of talking about how Bong Joon-ho's nomination, as I was saying, it kind of feels like a given at this point, but if you see Pedro Almodovar also get a nomination, you get an evidence that the Academy really is more international in this way. Like last year, you had Paul Polakowski and Alfonso Cuarón nominated, so if that continues, like this idea that international directors really can break through in the best director category it'd be a, it'd be a, a nice uh, glimpse of what the academy is going to be in the future is what mark's argument was
3: is it true that the director's branch just has more voters in there that um is it just like a have their eye on uh, international cinema or they just have more representation inside the director's branch
1: I think there are more international directors in the direct, international members of the directors, and the directors' branch is really small too. So that can like that can change the weight. Um, sorry, Mark has Mark has a Mark has a stat in his piece. He says uh, the Academy has invited thirty three new members to the directors' branch since last year, and fewer than a quarter of those are American. So that that can tell you how much this skews international.
2: Well, you get you get you just get a smaller group, and you're going to get more niche choices. Although niche choices sounds like. Uh, Again, it sounds dismissive, like the Little Women thing. I I hesitate saying, like, oh, there's not enthusiasm for Little Women because it makes it sound like a a negative. Like, I just think, I think, I will say, I think enthusiasm for Little Women is growing at this point. It's not the film that anybody, uh, although the screenings were packed, like, uh, it's not a film that uh, maybe has the mystery around it because people know this age-old story but it um it definitely has a lot of passion and excitement going going forward that's growing
3: it's true Katie and I are in a little echo chamber where we're like i will we will fly to go see a screening of little women <laughs> uh, we are dying to see that movie but i get i get that we're not everyone um but you know what's uh, what's interesting about what you mentioned Anthony reminds me of something we talk about sometimes which is like there are films that can come out of a film festival with enough critical buzz and film festival buzz that like that that they can ride all the way to the ceremony and then there's some films where you really do need that boost from a wide release like if everyone's talking about something uh that can push it over the edge you know what I mean such as joker just the Joker. Well, but aren't we like Absolutely. reluctantly talking about that?
1: And then aren't we like done talking about it
3: now? Are we still talking about the Joker? It I think we're be. still
1: talking about Joker, unfortunately. Okay. I mean, like, I, right. I was kind con- of talking about Todd Phillips earlier. Like, I'm not sure that it's a contender and best director uh, as we're talking about, but I do feel like Joker's hugeness and like, you know, the actor actorness of Joaquin Phoenix's performance, I don't think they're going away.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, like, nominations. Yeah. Feel inevitable i mean especially for joaquin but but if joaquin decides i mean it's interesting to me that brad pitt wasn't there uh to circle all the way back to <laughs> anthony's report because i like i said the other day i didn't think brad pitt was like playing the game and you were like i think he absolutely is and so i'm just this is a data point right i know
1: he said in a new york times profile he wasn't going to be campaigning so it's like okay you you are you're campaigning as you speak say these words. Um, but it does seem like that might be, he might leave it alone for a while.
2: He's pulling a little bit of a George C. Scott, right? Although I think George C. Scott was sincere when he said he didn't want to be part of a quote meat parade. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) I always loved that about him, man. That was, I think that's, that's intense. That's, that's sincere. But, but I think Brad Pitt is like, he's going to be the one that I think he's playing the game of you have to look a little harder to find me and create a little more anticipation and excitement around it. Yeah, and because you he's Brad Pitt, you can it, get away with it. The more you seem to want it, the more a turnoff it is. It's just like, I don't know, it's, I guess like relationships or meeting people. You know, if you have some friend who comes on really strong, wants to be your best pal or wants to date you or something, like, you know, step off. Uh, remember when, I think it was the aviator when, uh, uh, you know, beloved Hollywood figure Harvey Weinstein was pushing so <laughs> hard for uh, like writing, having people say like Martin Scorsese deserves this Oscar for Raging Bull, deserves this Oscar for, you know, Mean Streets. And, and um, people were like, that's not how this works. And then it was just like, Ugh, too much, too much in our face. And that's not the year he won.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can imagine if it starts looking like someone else is a real threat and supporting actor, Brad Pitt, like stepping on the gas a little bit. But jo- hey, guys,
2: yeah, hey, here I am. Yeah,
1: but Joanna, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, to to apologize for my previous remarks, I do like I think Brad Pitt is playing a different game, but is 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 kind of sitting out the the meat parade part of it. So. You were right. About I'm just
3: that. gonna keep my no. I mean, I don't need to be like told you, but uh, <laughs> I
1: just want to keep my. I'll give eye my credit in due time. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I
3: just keep my eye on the on the bride game. I'm interested. I'm always interested. Like if you can win an Oscar without playing the game in a like really aggressive way, that's fascinating. And like there are certain performers who could do that and they are performers who have put in the work for a long time and that's Brad Pitt not just with his acting but with his producing work you know what I mean so like he's a figure who maybe doesn't have to do that and I would be you know if he wins anyway that's interesting to me so yeah
1: I'm trying to I want to like look back at recent history and see who I because like there definitely definitely been people who have won without playing the game it's usually like such a big undeniable performance that you kind of have to give it to like like Mark Rylance I remember was really hard to pin down that entire year and then Sylvester Stallone was playing the game really hard and won. Up losing in the end so that's like maybe one example of someone who pulled it off um, yeah but like in best actor like you know Rami Malek Eddie Redmayne like even Leonardo DiCaprio like they were everywhere like they they played hard so it can go with way
3: the run for revoke is where you'll meet all
0: the most exciting people in fashion and culture I am Fran Um, who should be the mayor of New York
1: we all support yeah. that we support that <laughs>
0: <laughs> very nice <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's
3: been really great Cheer being in this
2: beautiful
0: pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
4: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
0: We can. We can.
4: All right, here we are.
0: <laughs> On the podcast,
1: you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run-through until we are AWOC.
3: Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um A-W-O-K, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the
0: hosts of The Run Through of Vogue where Fashion and Culture Collide. Join us, it's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Um, can we talk about 1917 for a little bit to get back to director? Yeah. Uh, Anthony, I've been kind of turning to you as our 1917 expert because you did talk to Sam Mendes, even though you haven't seen the movie, and I don't think anybody has, as far as I know. Um, No one
2: has. I'm going to see it a little bit early because I'm moderating one of the uh, first screenings of it. Oh, when's uh, that? uh, um, It'll be the weekend right after Thanksgiving.
1: Oh, wow. So they're really holding it to the last possible moment.
2: Yes. And I was going to say, you know, connect this back to Brad Pitt. Sometimes, even for Academy members, the campaign, the Oscar season situation gets to be pretty tiresome by the end. Like you're talking about the same movies over and over. And you've seen the same people, and so if you hold back a little, and there's a little more freshness, I don't know, just more interesting. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's uh, it's so if Brad Pitt turns up and starts doing cocktail parties, like that's exciting for voters, and um, and uh, I think that 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 there's something to be said for that. There are people who need the attention early, but Brad Pitt was always already getting the talk, so he doesn't have to start out yeah so strong. And the same thing goes for 1917, which is a big. Um, this is a a tactic that Universal has used a lot is right after Thanksgiving people, I mean, what does everybody do? They go to the movies, right? And Academy members are the same way. And a lot of people who stay behind in LA have their Thanksgiving meal. They want to go to see a film that weekend. And what's better than seeing a film that nobody else can see. Yeah. So you have a bunch of screenings for 1917 or Les Mis, uh, you know, and, uh, I don't know. Maybe cats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wait, does but, Universal uh, have cats too? No. Do they? Yeah. Oh, my! So the Universal has 1917 and cats coming out in December. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's going to be busy. They're going
2: to be competing against each other. And uh, yeah, so uh, it's um, 1917 is going to have a big reveal right after that. And uh, this is what I mean by like there's that natural curiosity. Like, okay, how are they going to pull off this single shot movie or what appears to be a single shot movie? Uh, so there's a lot of wonder there and a lot of built-in curiosity. So it'll have that going for it. And then it has to pay it off. But uh, definitely is something that people are like, uh, okay, how'd you pull this off? How'd you do yeah. it?
1: Yeah. I mean, in terms of like Oscars, we're like trying to figure out how Sam Mendes fits into this. Like he's kind of had it. He'd get his time in the James Bond Gulag. It feels like he's back in some way. <laughs> the best director category really likes a, a technical accomplishment. Um, so that feels like it gives him an edge there.
2: Roger Deakins, too, mm-hmm. like getting the uh, um, the cinematography involved in creating these seamless sequences is, uh, is going to be a real, well, I mean, it all depends on how it works, right? If it's believable and surprising, then it's going to blow people.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing I feel like Bombshell, when it debuted a couple weeks ago, everyone is really curious about how they're going to pull this off. So like you're saying, Anthony, everyone's going to go check it out after Thanksgiving.
2: And there's risk here, too. It's not guaranteed. Just because you say you're making a single take movie might be fine. You know, but there are also things involved in cutting and the language of movie making that's uh, exciting and interesting too and plays in your mind in a compelling way. Uh, Hitchcock felt that rope was not a successful experiment because he didn't have the mobility of camera movement to get close-ups to pull back and change lenses and things, Uh, you know, to give you a different perspective. So it was more like an elegantly filmed play yeah and you can do a lot i mean we've all seen those videos where you you know it 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 shows like uh the scene on the ferry in jaws where it's a single take but it feels like a whole bunch of different cuts because the camera's moving it's pushing into the mayor's face it's pulling back to see the group of guys talking about what they're going to do about the shark it's zeroing in on brody chief brody and then it's spinning around like it's there's there's like a, a almost like a little ballet going on with the camera. Now, the advantage they have is that cameras have never been more compact or movable or portable. So you can have, uh, you know, somebody hauling a cam on his back chasing after these two soldiers as they book across a battlefield and then like attach him seamlessly to a crane that swoops up and lifts him and swings him up over some trees. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing was not, not as possible in the past just because the cameras were bulkier and, and, uh, and now they're teeny tiny. So you can do things that look great on a giant screen, but also have the mobility of, uh, you know, kind of an old camcorder.
1: Yeah. Um, do you guys have any final contenders you want to throw out for best director?
3: you mentioned lulu wang is like a sort of dark horse right
1: yeah i mean i think the farewell farewell is my uh, pick for like a a best picture nomination that maybe will be a little bit of a surprise i think i think think she has a really good shot in screenplay too but like again i think that if we have an all-male director lineup it will feel like a shame um so she mariel heller greta gerwig and um lorraine scafaria i think all deserve to be part of that conversation
2: Yeah, yeah i agree
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: Lula, no, I think Lulu Wang would be wonderful. I think that movie is very touching and it connects with people. Uh, everybody's had a, a grandmother or some older relative that they love and have to say goodbye to. Like, It's, it's going to connect with folks yeah. and they're going to relate to if it. If you
1: can't get into the 1917 screening after Thanksgiving, it'd be a great screener to watch uh, with your family yep. after your Thanksgiving meal.
2: Great suggestion. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, so now let's uh, go to Richard's conversation with Elizabeth Moss, the star of Her Smell.
4: Well, I have the pleasure right now of sitting across the table from... Elizabeth Moss, who is, I always say Elizabeth Moths because someone at the Emmys or Golden Globes said it. I forget who. It was some presenter by accident. Like he, and it just stuck in my mind forever. So I apologize. It's
0: totally I fine. I vaguely remember that and I can't remember yeah, who it was. it
4: was. It was a cherished moment. I forget. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you yeah. for having me. Um, this has been a heck of a year for you, I feel like, in in with, with various projects, but the one that we're mostly here to talk about because we're kind of trying to go back now that the year is at, coming to an end, looking back at some great you know, work that came earlier in the year. Uh, and Her Smell is certainly one of those films. We had Alex in here, I guess, m- more time to the movie's release back in the spring. So this feels like a good bookend.
0: Cool. Because um, you
4: really can't <laughs> talk about that movie without talking about you in that movie. Um, so I'm curious, just to kind of get the, the origin story, when did this project come to you? And when you read it, Did it read like what we see on screen? I mean, because I can't even imagine what that would look like on paper.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's kind of a classic example of how Alex and I have worked and collaborated. Um, He sent me a text after he had, uh, I think, watched a documentary. And he was like, "Uh, this is interesting. And uh, I'm really intrigued by this idea of a woman raising a baby, a tiny baby or just the image of a a woman holding an infant and being off her rocker, either drunk or high or both, and also just possibly insane, and what that looks like. And that was the kernel of the idea. And I texted him back. I was like, that sounds great. Go for it. Yeah, Love it. And it morphed over, he says it's like a year and a half, I seem to remember it being shorter, but he's probably right. And it kind of morphed into, like, at one point it was going to be this teeny, 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 tiny movie that was all going to take place in one hotel room or motel room with really long, locked-off shots. And it just kind of morphed into this much bigger thing for us. (laughs) Alex and I say it's like our, you know, it's like our avatar. Like, we're used to making, like, really tiny movies Mm -hmm. with, like, $250,000 budgets and, you know, literally no crew. Um, So this was a big deal for us. (laughs) This was our big-budget film, Um, even though it was not big-budget at all. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, so when I finally got the script you know, he had warned me, he was like, it's kind of become this thing, it's bigger, it's, there's more characters, there's different acts. And I was like, sounds good. And when he finally sent it to me, I was like, great. This is this is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. This role is, I'm honored and also terrified and confused as to how you think I can do this. Um, and he was like, you can. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And uh, it's exactly, to answer your second question, It's it's that's how it was written Mm -hmm. all of those speeches all of those monologues all of the when she sort of says something and and misspeaks or changes a word or changes a syllable in something that's in the script wow and uh i've there's barely any improv whatsoever um i can't even think of what it would be just performance stuff but nothing that wasn't scripted
4: yeah yeah i guess when when i talked to alex about it we it, it seemed like this sense of controlled chaos because the movie, when you're watching, it has to feel wild and, and out of control. But like maybe in order to capture that feeling, you have to know exactly what you're doing uh, when you're shooting, right?
0: Absolutely, totally. And even just as far as the lines and memorizing the lines, I'm pretty good at that because I've been doing this for a long time. And uh, this was one of the only times I had trouble yeah. because it was so dense and so specific and believe it or not even though if there's something that the character Becky says that doesn't make sense if you didn't actually say it in the way that it's supposed to not make sense and you messed it up it really didn't make sense right. so you had to be weirdly specific about it exactly and like and and yeah it was this controlled chaos and it was you know okay well we want the freedom for Becky to be able to go and jump on that couch and go and be able to run into another room. At the same time, we need to be able to follow it and we need to be able to know what Becky's gonna do so that we can get it on camera. Um, So it was, um, it had to feel chaotic, but you're right, it had to be sort of very specifically laid out, which is why we did this rehearsal process thing, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure Alex told you about.
4: Yeah. How did you feel being at the center of that vortex? I mean, it's a a movie that Everything kind of leans towards you in it, you know, is that is that kind of the dream for an actor or is that scary or what? Yeah,
0: I guess a bit of both. Yeah, I guess a bit of both actors are a funny combination of extremely confident and ex- I think extremely confident and extremely extremely shy mm-hmm. uh it's a very strange combination um you have to be sort of really brave to you know act like an asshole a lot of the time in front of the camera at the same time uh that is of course scary because you're human so it was um it was scary for me I always hesitate to say that because it's like come on it's acting it's not that hard or or scary but uh I just felt self-conscious at the beginning about whether or not I could play the character and whether or not I could be as big, and chaotic, and crazy as she needed to be. She didn't work unless you went all the way. It didn't make sense unless you went balls to the wall with it. And I just kind of didn't know if I could do that. You know, it was he had written this huge challenge, and in the beginning, he kind of Alex kept pushing me and. Pushing, pushing me to go further, further, and further. And I was like, okay, go further. Okay, here we go. <laughs> and faster, faster, faster. That was a thing that often was was said. Um, very old school kind of directing, just do it faster. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah. okay, I can't <laughs> breathe, but okay. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to spoil anything for people listening who haven't seen the movie yet. So go watch the movie then come back because mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about... The ending of the movie, because when I when the movie started, I said, OK, this is going to be some descent into hell and it's going to end and it's going to be so depressing. Mm-hmm. And then you don't do that. I mean, the movie finds a grace. It finds, I don't want to say redemption. I don't know that she needs, you know, it, it's more of a, a catharsis, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you kind of think of Becky's arc and, and, and where she lands at the end?
0: Yeah, it was a big conversation that Alex and I had throughout the process of, of developing the script, writing it, casting it, everything. We just kind of kept going back and forth. Should she... Uh, I don't, don't want to spoil anything for people It's later. okay. Yeah, yeah, it okay? Yeah. We'll, we'll give a fair warning. Yeah. Okay, Yeah. yeah. Okay. good. They've, you've gone and watched the movie. Yes. Good job. <laughs> um, does she relapse or not at the end, basically? Yeah. And uh, we went back and forth on it, and we kind of just landed in this place of, it doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. because... She's going to, whether or not it was that day, whether or not it's next week. We wanted to tell a realistic story of an addict. And it takes a lot of time sometimes to finally kind of get to the place you need to get to. It it doesn't just happen overnight. And a lot of people go back to rehab many many times and get clean many many times before it it really sticks that's that's just realistic and so we wanted to just kind of embrace the truth of it in the end and you know I think that she relapses that day um for whatever reason she needs to in order to get through that I also think that she's going to get clean again uh, for her daughter. And I think that she's going to eventually be sober. Um, but it might take 10 more times. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of my viewpoint of her arc of it. Just, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that she is on her way and she has realized why she needs to be sober and that's for her child. And that's the only thing that really kind of sticks out for me. That's important.
4: Yeah, I mean, I in my own kind of dealing with with loved ones who are in various stages of recovery, the conversation about particularly relapsing, and the attendant guilt that comes with that, I think that the kind of more instructive language that people you know use in, in counseling or whatever is, you're all putting stuff in the bank. You're putting time in the bank. If you did thirty days, and then you have a slip, okay, but you had thirty days, you totally. know. And a, once you get sober that first time at least you have the clarity of knowing what that feels like, you know? Right. right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And you know, you can do it. Yeah. You know, I can't speak to, you know, personal experience with it, but just from my research and from talking to people, which, you know, I had a couple people who were really open and generous, um, and, and honest about their experiences and their recovery. And it was really important to us to Alex and I are both people who don't have experience with this. Mm -hmm. And it was really important for us to be as kind of truthful and honest about that as possible and be respectful about what that process is. That was like, I was like, I don't want to mess that up.
4: Yeah. No, I mean, for me, it felt, um, I mean, I haven't been through it myself, but I, you know, I know people who have, it felt, I liked the, the honesty of its ambiguity, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, you don't know. You know, someone could be sober for 10 years and Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a reason why it's like called, you know, you're in recovery. It's it's (laughs) you're not like, Yay, all better. (laughs) (laughs) You fixed it. Yeah, yeah.
4: Um,
0: yeah. And Alex, you know, one of the original concepts behind the movie and what he wanted to do was he didn't want to tell that story of a person who is, you know, on their rise to fame and Mm -hmm. then falls. He was like, What if we start a movie in the fall with the fall? What if we cut out all the good stuff in the beginning, which is, like, very Alex Ross Perry. Like, yeah. let's start like, the most, like, negative point, And we just tell the story of her demise. And what does that look like? And I was like, yeah, that's that's cool. I haven't seen that movie.
4: So you and Alex have done other things before. Um, I'm curious how important to you, like, as an actor, as you kind of navigate your career, is that kind of intense collaboration? I mean, because I know some actors, they, they can just show up it does they don't need to know everyone involved but others like to work in a more intimate scale where, where do you think you
0: fall on that kind of definitely on the more intimate scale yeah. side uh yeah I, I i love the idea of an actor or writer producer whatever it is can kind of continually collaborating with the same filmmaker um you know i'm not as much of a film nerd as Alex is mm-hmm. no one is he's I mean his knowledge is I mean crazy. it's just insane yeah. uh but I do have some knowledge and I you know I love those collaborations of like you know the 60s and 70s of where people just constantly had this stable of actors and they just made the same you know different stories with these same actors in the same crew I love that I think that's uh, a much easier way to make a movie if you know everybody. All that, you know, most of the crew on, on Her Smell I'd worked with twice already, mm-hmm. as well as Alex maybe three times, you know? So that kind of um, atmosphere I just actually find really helpful. When you find somebody like Alex, who there's no real reason why him, him and I should be collaborators and have made three films together, but there's something about the movies that he likes to make and the stuff that I like to make and what he's good at and what I'm good at and his weaknesses and my weaknesses that go together. And where he doesn't know something I do and where I don't know something he does and I don't direct for him, he doesn't act for me and I don't write, you know, it just is this kind of great understanding and um, we like doing it. and, and I, and I, I hope that we make 10 more movies together yeah, I, you me know too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um,
4: so just to zoom out a little bit, um, you know you've done a lot of good stuff in, in recent years, and what I think is especially exciting about that is that you were coming off this huge show, this cultural phenomenon, Mad Men. I would imagine that there was a maybe it was an hour, maybe it was a day, maybe it was a week longer, where you're standing kind of that precipice and you're like, oh my God, is this going to work? Like, am I Peggy forever? You know, how did you kind of manage that transition, I guess?
0: I think by kind of just like ignoring it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think if you think about something like that too much, it could be really terrifying. And I kind of just ignored it um, and didn't worry about it too much. I also felt like, hey, look, if this thing, Mad Men, and if Peggy is something that I'm known the most for for the rest of my life, fantastic. That's way more than a lot of people ever get. Like, what a great thing to be known for. I personally would be bored doing the same thing over and over. Mm -hmm. I would like to continue working and acting because I very much enjoy it. I love it very much. So I just kind of kept doing that. And I didn't have a grand plan i didn't have a design about well i'm now going to go do something like this because that's different i just sort of always you know do the things that i think read the best and are the best scripts and if it's like something i've done before fine if it's not great you know it's not something that i think about too much i just kind of follow whatever my artistic instinct is at the time you know with um with handmaids like i had no intention of of getting on another show I think so soon after Mad Men I guess it was like a couple years maybe mm-hmm. but I also didn't really think that I wouldn't Yeah. I just thought well if something comes along that's worth it and that I can't not do that's what we're going to do. And thank I'm so glad I did obviously I love that show.
4: We actually just uh, had Tracy Letts in here uh, earlier in the day and he kind on. of said something similar where he was like I don't have any plan I don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. I don't like I and that's great to hear because I'm a big fan of his, so I'm glad he's, he's, he's working the same angle. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that, you know, if you think too much about it, you'll end up kind of putting yourself in a box that you don't need to be in. Um, I never thought that I would be on West Wing, you know, when I was 17. That was not my plan. And there it was, and it was an incredible experience. I never thought that I'd be on Mad Men for seven years. Like this show about advertising in the 60s, I never thought that was going to be what it was. Yeah. So I kind of have this thing of, like, well, you didn't plan that, and that worked out, so maybe, you know, don't worry about it too much. (laughs)
4: Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you haven't gotten to do yet that you would be curious to try?
0: Hmm, Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about recently, uh, I tend to kind of play the, um, or maybe just more recently, I tend to sort of play like the heroine, Mm -hmm. and um, the one that you're supposed to believe in, and the one that you're supposed to follow and look up to. I'm kind of um, interested in exploring the villain a little bit, and that was what was really fun about Becky and her smell. She's a terrible person. Yeah, I mean, she's, you shouldn't like her, you know? If I can somehow make you like her in that movie, then that you, it's about you. You're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you have
4: a lot of empathy exactly. and compassion.
0: you Exactly, yeah. you're a good person. But she's not a likable character, and I thought that was really interesting to play after um, June, who's such a, you know, heroine. Yeah. You know, uh, so it was fun to go play somebody who was a total fucking asshole, you know.
4: How much in your work, I mean, because, uh, you know, this is obviously a, a really intense, up-close emotional piece Um, not that Handmaids isn't, but Handmaids also has all the broader weight of like politics kind of on its shoulders and stuff like that. When you uh, approach something you're doing, how much of the outside world are you bringing to bear? I mean, do you feel like you're processing the world through your work? Or, I mean, do you think of it in those kind of therapeutic terms almost?
0: Yeah, sometimes, not all the time. Um, Handmaids is like very, it's so literal sometimes. So it's that would be probably my biggest experience with something's going on in the world outside that everyone is experiencing, and in all walks of life, and I'm doing something that I feel like is very parallel to that, uh, exercising my own feelings about it, and you know my my own opinions and emotions, and that would be like the closest I've gotten to that other than that and this happens even on handmaids too, I try to approach it from personal, not political um, with Peggy, you know I never thought of her as a girl in the 60s. I thought of her as a, uh, as a woman in, of any time mm-hmm. uh, of any age who was dealing with the situation that she was dealing with and that was my sort of way into her and to make her relatable. Um, same with June you know she's a, she's a mother. And a wife and a woman and she's dealing with the situations the way that i, I think that this person would deal with them so I, I kind of try to make it a little bit more intimate i guess yeah then um then thinking oh I'm, I'm going to tie in you know the world's problems into this character right.
4: <laughs> you know watching her smell again um and i think the first time too i kept thinking about a movie i'd seen not too long before that, which was a movie called Madeline's Madeline, Mm. uh, Josephine Decker film, and then I looked at your IMDb, and I was like, oh, she's working with her. That makes (laughs) total sense. Can you talk a little bit about Shirley, where you play Shirley Jackson?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a a, also a really interesting, different kind of movie. Um, It's a brilliant script by a writer named Sarah Gubbins, and uh, she just wrote this, like, one of the best scripts I've ever read, and then Jose came in and kind of like turned it into her own you know sort Mm -hmm. of strange magical film. Um, It's one sort of section of Shirley's life. Um, We didn't want it to be a biopic or biopic or whatever you say. Um, I still don't know. All these years later I have no idea. (laughs) Nobody does. (laughs) Um, We didn't want it to be that. There's stuff you know that we've kind of fudged and fictionalized um, that isn't exactly accurate. But what we did was try to follow the emotion of it, try to represent who Shirley is, Um, and Stanley, her husband, who's played by Michael Stuhlbarg. It's really just as much about him as it is her. And uh, just show this slice of their life, this slice of this marriage, and this slice of what it was like to be that writer. She, you know, had a lot going on in her head. Um, She was an addict. Um, she was a very difficult person uh, in a very difficult marriage Stanley was the same um, and she was a very complicated artist and so what Sarah did so brilliantly I think was just sort of make you feel like what it would have been to be like to be in Shirley's head for a little while mm-hmm. um, and it follows the it, uh, parallel of her writing a, a book called The hangsman mm-hmm. um, which was after the lottery came out so she's dealing with a lot of um, the press from that a lot of blowback from that Mm -hmm.
4: i also want to ask i don't know how much you can say but um you also shot a wes anderson movie yeah yeah Yeah. uh what was that experience like i mean because his movies are so visually distinctive and, and tonally distinctive does it feel that when you're, like, actually on the set for one of those things?
0: Yeah. yeah. It was so cool. <laughs> um, I'm sure I can't talk about the plot and stuff, but I'll just, I can talk about my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a huge Wes Anderson fan, as um, so many of us are. And uh, one of my personal dreams to be in a film of his. Um, and I, I don't have a big part or anything, but I did get to work with some cool people and do some cool stuff. And it was so cool because... It felt like you were in a Wes Anderson movie, you know, like you're on the set and everything looks like a Wes Anderson film and, and the other actors look like they're in the movie and, and he looks like, Wes Anderson looks like Wes Anderson and, and it's, um, obviously such a brilliant writer and he's so organized and he's so, you know, it's all planned out as to what you're going to do. Yet there's this kind of great freedom to do whatever you want and be funny or not funny. And make it your own and he um he's one of those directors who quite you know smartly hires good people mm-hmm. and expects them to do a good job and um it was a very it was a very small experience but it was a very cool experience it felt like being a weird dream where you're dropped into a wes henderson movie <laughs> right. it's very
4: cool yeah <laughs> well i hope you get to have many more experiences like that but in the meantime i would urge anyone listening to seek out her smell it's like i it's long ago, enough ago that I can say I walked out of it and I texted the publicist and I said that's a masterpiece. <laughs> like I was like so taken by it because wow. again I was sort of thinking it was going to be one thing and then it's something very different. So
0: thank you. Yeah, I yeah, really appreciate yeah. that and thank you for your support of it. As you know, like small films like that, anyone seeing them and saying something nice about them means a lot to us. <laughs>
4: yeah, I mean I think sometimes that's like the one good thing that people on my side of things can do these days It's just like totally. forget about that. Everyone's going to go see Avengers, but like right. maybe also this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, balance it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much thank you yeah. thank you for having me mm-hmm.
1: okay that does it for this week's episode uh, next week hopefully we'll have both Mike and Richard back to continue the conversation and obviously we'll have Anthony back on again very soon in the meantime you can find us at vanityfair.com writing about all this stuff including Anthony's great write up of the Governor's Awards uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and we're on our own I'm at Katie Rich Joanna I'm at This, and Anthony
2: I'm at Bresnikan easy <laughs> uh, to find which you, you should be able to just spell it how it sounds
1: (laughs) (laughs) this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs
3: and the award for the most accurate description of where we sent Richard and Mike goes to Katie Rich the James Bond Gulag
2: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour